Well, good morning, LifePoint Online. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name's Dean. I'm the lead pastor I'm here at our church, and we're so grateful that you've taken the opportunity uh, to join us today as we jump back into our series in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, we followed this pattern. Um, read it in, pray it up, and live it out. And so today we're going to jump into what I believe is one of the most familiar teachings, probably the most familiar of all the parables that Jesus taught in this series that we are calling labels. And the reason we're calling it labels is because we all fight these, these battles around our identity. We attach labels to our own heart, um, things that we think are true that are not that are not, that are not real. We allow other people to attach labels to us, but the gospel calls us to a life that's above those labels, a life um, where we want to say what is true about us because God says it's true. Getting back to that uh, Imago Dei, that original image of God that was given to us in the Garden of Eden. So today, uh, like I said, we're gonna look at probably one of the most familiar teachings. And sometimes when you do that, you know, you kind of get lost in the familiarity, but I am super excited to talk our way uh, through Luke chapter 15. Now, when you hear that and you hear the story of the prodigal son, the way it's typically taught, uh, you probably think, well, I've heard this before and I've got it, I kind of got a beat on it, I kind of got it figured out. But I'm gonna say maybe to you today that it's not just the story of the prodigal son, singular, but it's the story of two boys. We look at things in history like, uh, like sibling rivalries, that natural competition that exists uh, between kids. You can go all the way back to, uh, to Jane Austen's sense and sensibility, right? You had the one sister, Eleanor, who lived by common sense, doing things in a very normal, uh, predictable fashion. And then you had Marianne, the other sister, who lived by feel and emotion and sensibility. Two siblings, same house, under the same roof, very, very different. Maybe a more modern example that's better. I'll show you a picture of uh, Ruda and Adi Dassler. Both of them grew up in Germany in the 1920s, these older brother, younger brother. And so they decided, even though they were very different, older brother, Ruda, very committed, very process-oriented, knew what he wanted, had goals set, was very different than his younger brother, Adi who was, you know, he was a people person and everybody, everybody loved him. They started a shoe company together that did very well, but something happened in a bunker in World War II. There were words said, there was a disagreement about uh, Nazi ideology and the two brothers separated. Adi kept the shoe company and kept that, kept that moving forward and kept that going. I changed the name of it to reflect only him and he named it for himself, Adi Das or the company that we know today as Adidas. And you're thinking, well, poor Ruda, right? I mean, he kind of got left out. No, no, he started his own shoe company to rival his brother's shoe company. And the name wasn't great, right? No one wanted to wear Rudas. Uh, so they ch he changed the name of his company to something that's much more familiar to us, to Puma. Two brothers who were incredibly gifted at their craft, but for the rest of their lives, they, they live separated. Maybe my favorite way to look at what we typically talk about as the narrative of this parable was the breakthrough role of young Will Smith back in the 90s and early 2000s uh, with the show, the TV, maybe one of the greatest sitcoms ever, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. 
Um, if you're young and you're watching uh, today, you're watching LifePoint online, uh, look over at your parents and make them do the intro uh, rap for you to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You know, I, I know they know it, right? This is the story about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. In that show, you have two boys who kind of become brothers, Will and Carlton. You got uh, Carlton, who's kind of the older brother in the story, and um, He's got a perfect GPA. He's never seen the inside of the principal's office. Um, he's got scholarships, National Honor Society. I mean, everything you would want in a kid. And then you've got Will. And Will comes along and he can make A's, but why make A's when you can make C's? And, you know, just kind of get by. He always seems to find his way into trouble. The member of nobody's honor society. And yet you see these two brothers, opposite uh, ends of the spectrum. The problem with how we tell the narrative of the prodigal uh, son story in Luke chapter 15 is that we tend to focus on only the sibling rivalry that exists in the brothers. When in reality, the teaching of the text, the message that Jesus is trying to get across is the fierce love of the Father. So what I want us to do today is I want us to jump all the way back to the beginning of Luke chapter 15. I want us to consider Jesus's audience. I want us to consider his intent, not just for the narrative, but for the whole chapter. And maybe we can see how uh, the fierce love of the Father that follows us everywhere we go, how it makes sense in the context. So Luke chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 say this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners uh, and eats with them. So two very distinct groups of people are listening to Jesus teach. There are the Pharisees on one side, and there are the tax collectors and sinners on the other side. The Pharisees, um, they made all the rules. The, uh, the tax collectors and sinners, they broke all of the rules. One group lawmakers, one group lawbreakers. Um, one group very religious, one group very rebellious. They couldn't be any more different. And yet Jesus has to tell, he has to teach a lesson that hits both groups. It's an incredible, incredible challenge. You've got the Pharisees who go to church five times a day. They pray five times a day. They follow all the rules, all the laws of their society. Um, they, they live to, uh, to perform. They live for power. And then you've got the tax collectors and sinners um, who live for pleasure. They, you've got the fundamentalists on one side. You've got the people who just want to have fun on the other side. And so Jesus is going to tell this teaching, give this teaching that's got to apply to both groups. So when we look at Luke chapter 15, the way that we tend to interpret this passage is that there are three parables. There's a parable about sheep, there's a parable about silver, and there's a parable about sons. I would suggest to you that that is not the best way to look at the chapter. Um, because verse 3 of Luke chapter 15 says this, So he, he being Jesus, so he told them this parable. It's parable singular, not parables plural. Luke chapter 15 is one story with three chapters. But it's all the same story, just told in three different 
in three different contexts. So the first, um, the first story, chapter one of Luke 15, if you'll say it that way, chapter one is about lost sheep. It says there's a, there's a shepherd and the shepherd's got a hundred sheep. And it, one night maybe he's counting them into the, into the fold and it's 96, 97, 98, 99, and he's missing one. So I'm sure he recounts them. He thinks it's probably just an I probably miscount. He counts them again. And he's still missing one, one sheep. 99 out of 100, pretty good, right? Um, if you're watching today and you're a, you're a student, maybe you're a high school student, maybe you're a college student, right? If I said to you, um, you're gonna get a 99 on a test, a lot of you would take that, right? Um, a lot of you would take a 79 on a test. Uh, he's got 99%, and you think, well, that's gotta, be, that's gotta be good enough for the shepherd. But in the story, the narrative that Jesus tells, the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep that he's got, and he goes out and he, uh, he finds this, this lamb, this sheep that has wandered far, far away. And when he brings him back, and this is the theme, or at least part of the theme of the text in Luke 15, here's what it says in verse seven. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The shepherd goes and gets the sheep. He finds him out in the night. He brings him home, calls all of his friends, and he throws a huge, huge party. That's chapter one. Chapter two, Jesus tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. And she turns her house upside down, cleaning it until she finds the one small, seemingly to us insignificant coin. Whenever I was in college, I got this, uh, this book called All the Parables of the Bible. Whenever I was just starting to do some teaching, it's by a guy named Herbert Lockyer. And one of the things that Lockyer says about this, this chapter two story about the, about the coin is that um, you've seen pictures of antiquity from the East um, where ladies would wear almost like a headband full of loose coins across their forehead. Lockyer says in their world, um, that, was like a, that was like an engagement ring. And so to lose one of those coins was somewhat similar, maybe in our culture, to losing your engagement ring. So Lockyer points out that this wasn't just she lost a penny, she dropped a dime, she dropped a nickel, but rather it was a sign. It was a significant sign culturally. So she does everything she can to find that coin. And when she finds it, she throws a party. And here's the interpretation of chapter two in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the sheep and the silver stories emphasize two ideas, lostness, the lost sheep, lost coin, and parties, excitement, uh, joy over something being returned home. So that brings us to the story that we know. It starts in verse 11 of chapter 15. The story of the two sons. I'm gonna say the story of the two prodigal sons. You know, the reason I think this story hits home is that maybe you're, maybe you're watching today and maybe you're estranged from family members. 
Maybe you have relational distance between a brother or a sister. Maybe words were said, actions were taken, uh, things happened around the settlement of an estate. Maybe you're from a family where you feel like you never measured up to your brother or to your sister. Or maybe your brother or your sister was favored in your family. Maybe they got more attention than you. Maybe sometimes for the right reasons. Maybe sometimes for the wrong reasons. But the reason that this story appeals to us is because in some way, shape, or form, we all have, um, we all have some connectivity to the emotion. Maybe, um, maybe you're a parent who's got a prodigal. Maybe you've got a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter who's wandered far, far off into, into this relational distance. Well, the way Jesus tells this story, there are two brothers that couldn't be any more different. Um, I was trying to think of something to compare. It would be like if Thomas Edison would be the older brother and his younger brother was Ferris Bueller, right? The two boys couldn't be, they couldn't be any more different from each other. Thomas Edison does everything right. He gets all the details right. And Ferris is so much fun to be around. Everybody loves him. It's it's sense and sensibility, it's Adi and Ruta Dashler, it's Will and Carlton to the nth degree. And so what happens is that Ferris, the younger brother, comes to his father, and Ferris, Ferris wants his share of the inheritance, which is unbelievably insulting, unbelievably insulting, not just in their culture, but in our culture. It would be like a child coming to a parent and saying, you know what, I wish you were dead. I just want the inheritance, I just want my money. And in their culture, the older, oldest sibling got two thirds of the inheritance, the younger sibling got one third. So Ferris comes and he says, hey, I, I want my third now. And probably I would think it's not a good parenting move by the father maybe, but the father says, okay. And he gives him a third as soon as he does. Ferris, right? He has thought all of his life, I am tired, I am sick of being home. The grass is greener, there is more fun to be had, there's more pleasure out of the world than I want. Ferris takes his money and he goes into, uh, to quote the text, the far country. I'm gonna say he goes to Vegas. Uh, girl on each arm, big bets on the table uh, every night, and he lives life to the nth degree, whatever he wants to do with his third um, of the estate. And that green grass, man, he is enjoying that green grass from the other side of the fence until the green grass turns brown. There's a famine, famine probably due to a drought. And all of a sudden, Ferris, who was the most popular guy in town for a while, finds himself alone and isolated because of the decisions that he's made. He's homeless and he's hungry. And the only job he can find is slopping hogs. Now, just push pause here for a minute because remember Jesus's two audiences. You've got the Pharisees on one side, you've got the religious on one side, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners on the other side. And at this point, the Pharisees are loving this story. They're thinking, Jesus, if you would just tell stories like this all the time, because obviously the younger brother, obviously Pharisees wandering off into the far country, that's an obvious reference to the tax collectors and sinners and to the consequences of their decisions and their desire to live their life based on solely pleasure, based on solely 
solely self. And the Pharisees, I've never thinking, Jesus, if you would just tell stories like this all the time, we wouldn't have a problem. They, th I mean, you know, pigs were like the least of the least animals that were off the kosher Jewish menu. They were unclean. So here he is in a hog pen with, with hogs, and he's experiencing all the consequences of his choices. And I'm sure the Pharisees were loving it. But that's not where the story ends. Here's Ferris in the hog pen, right? And in verse 18 of Luke chapter 15, things, um, things start to change. Here's what the younger brother says to, to himself. He says, I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one uh, of your hired servants. So, Ferris makes the home decision. And I would just say it's the most critical decision that any and all of us are gonna make in our lives. Whether or not we are going to come home to our creator. Ferris says, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna go home to dad. It, it, this doesn't make, this, I mean, it, you know, originally he's sick of home, now he's homesick. And he says, you know what? I'm, I'm heading home. On his way home, he, he's, what am I gonna say? So he starts working on a speech. We talked right there in chapter 18. He says, okay, on my way home, um, I'm thinking this thing through. Here's what I'm gonna say. Um, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So that's the first part of the speech is confession, right? The second part of the speech is contrition. Make me as one of your hired servants. In other words, I'm, I know I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I know I've wasted your money. I know I've disgraced you publicly. I know all of that. I just wanna be a servant. I just wanna work for you. What I really want is just, is just a job. So disown me, whatever needs to happen, I just, I just wanna be here because I know now what I had done. What he doesn't know is that meanwhile, back at the ranch, every night, the father, he leaves this empty place setting at the table, hoping Ferris is gonna come home and fill that space because the father fiercely loves, he fiercely loves his son. And after dinner's over every night, and Ferris isn't there, <laughs> he goes out and he sits down on the porch and he looks out the road, just hoping to catch a glimpse. Hoping, dreaming, believing. Some of you know what this is like. Waiting for the day for the child to come home. And so one night, he's probably just right about to wrap it up and uh, head into the house and he looks down and maybe in the dusk, he sees a figure coming up the road. Who's that? And the closer the figure gets to him, maybe he thinks, man, that kind of looks like, that kind of looks like Junior, but man, he looks different. That's not Junior. I mean, this guy's got mud caked all over him. Looks like slop. He's got gnats buzzing all around him. I mean, he's in my mind, I think about uh, Pigpen from Charlie Brown, right? He's coming up the road. He's like, well, he I mean, he's about Junior's height. He's, he kind of walks like Junior, but something's different. And the closer he gets, the more hope rises in the father's heart. 
until he realizes, that's my boy. That is my son. Now, at this point, the father culturally has, has a decision to make. He had three different options. Number one, he could stone him to death. I'm not saying that's right or wrong in, their, um, in, in terms of what we think about parenting. I'm just saying in their culture, if your child disgraced you the way this son disgraced his father, the child could be stoned to death. The second thing he could do is he could lecture him. He could sit there and cross his arms and wait for him to approach the porch and it's teaching time, right? He could, he could stone him to death, he could lecture him, or the third option is he could just love him. And the father cannot stand to wait. He cannot stand to sit on the porch. So the text says, that he jumps off of the porch and that he runs down the road and that he falls on his son's neck and that he kisses him. And as soon as their interaction begins, I love this just little nuance of the way that Jesus tells the story, the way that Luke includes um, this, this detail in verse 21, and the son, the son wants to start the conversation. He wants to get this thing over with. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, what happened to the second half of the speech? What happened to make me as one of your, he got to, he got to confession, but he didn't get to control. The father just cuts him off. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm grateful for the, for the breaking, for the humbling. I'm grateful for the confession. I'm grateful, but, but nothing after that. The father says to everyone who's watching, his clothes have been packed up in storage. Why don't you get those out? His jewelry, the signet ring, the thing that says he's my son that's been packed away, that's probably been put in a safe somewhere. Yeah, get the, get the ring out, get the shoes out. Whatever, whatever cow we've got ready, whatever the best of the best is, we're gonna kill that cow and we are gonna have the barbecue to end all barbecues. We are gonna party because this, my son, who was lost, is now found. You see the consistency, lostness and parties. Lostness and then in this story, right, repentance, turning, this confession, contrition, and parties. And what I'd like to say is, well, the story ends right there. But that's not how the story ends. Because as the party is going on, the older brother, Thomas Edison, <laughs> he shows up. He's been out working. He's always out working. And he finishes up work. Maybe he's traveling, he comes in and he hears the party and he asks the servants, what's going on? And they said, your brother, your brother has come home and your father, he's gotten the robe out, he's gotten the ring out, he's gotten the shoes out. He killed the fatted calf and that's why we're celebrating. And Thomas Edison is up, he is upset. And so the father hears about it, that he, will, he refuses to come into the house. He refuses to come into the party. And here's the interaction between the older brother 
and the father. Um, down in verse 28. But he, he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, asked him, begged him, right, to come in. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed a com your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And all of a sudden you see this relational angst between the older brother and the father. And the irony of the story, right, is that in the beginning of the narrative, what happens? The older brother is at home and the younger brother wanders far away. When the story ends, the younger brother is at home with the father and the older brother is outside the house refusing to come home. Here's the interesting to me, here's the interesting part of the story and the way all of Luke 15, it all works together. The parable of the prodigal sons, plural, not son, singular, right? So where is, um, where's the younger son? Where is he lost? He's lost in the far country. Where was the sheep or the lamb? Where was it lost? It wandered far, far away, right? Remember chapter one of the story. Where, was the, where is the older brother? Where is Thomas Edison lost? He's lost at home. Where was the coin lost? The coin was lost in the house. It is not the parable of the lost son. It is the parable of the lost sons, one who's lost in rebellion and one who's lost in religion. Both sons are lost. Both sons have to come home to a relationship with their father. Both sons have to make the home decision. So I think there's two applications uh, for us today, one from Jesus's life and one from Jesus's lesson. Number one, Jesus's life teaches us common people loved him. Sinners tax collectors, outcasts, they loved Jesus. They loved being around him. And I just wonder for you and me sometimes, is there just like this, this kind of snooty religious air about our lives, this kind of attitude that we're better than others, that uh, maybe we're unapproachable to other people because we just kind of give off this air, like we've got it all together and we don't have time um, for you. And I just wonder, are there broken people in your life? Are there people who need to make the home decision that you're praying for, that you're encouraged, right? In the process of, of kind of going through the gospel of Luke, one of the things that we did was we set an alarm at 10.02 every day to pray, Luke 10.2, that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. Are there, are, are there, is there at least somebody, is there one person in your life that you're praying for who's broken, who's wandered far away, who's maybe living for pleasure, living in rebellion, that you're praying for, that you're believing God for, that someday they're gonna turn and they're gonna come home to their creator. Jesus's life teaches us that the common people loved him. But the second thing that I see here in the text is that we have a lesson from Jesus. And the lesson of the parable of the prodigal sons is that we are pursued by the fierce, fierce love of God. 
What we learn is that it is entirely possible to be just as lost inside the walls of religion as it is to be lost outside living in wandering rebellion. Both sons in the story are lost. Both sons have to come home to their creator. Both sons have to make the decision, the home decision to come home to the father. And I think sometimes it's easy for you and me when we grow up maybe in a religious family to think somehow that, that's just kind of transferred to you and me. I had the opportunity to go to um, tour Ohio Stadium a few years ago and run on the turf field there. But running on the turf field, um, that, that didn't make me a D1 recruit miraculously. Like some things gotta change for that to happen. The old adage, like a person standing in a garage, just because you stand in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? Just standing inside the walls of religion doesn't make you a Christian. You have to be converted for that. You have to repent. But religious people have to repent, just like rebellious people have to repent. We all have to turn. How, you say, well, then how do I know? Listen, it's not the utter disappearance of sin in our lives. We're always gonna carry the flesh. We're always gonna be flawed. We're always gonna be broken. It's not the utter disappearance of sin that marks a Christian, or even sometimes this pretend, this, this masking that we do to make ourselves look more religious than we really are. Rather, it's the growth of Christian fruit. And as Christian fruit grows in our heart, what then we see is the waning of that old fleshly part of us, never completely gone, but probably also never as completely seen, that the more we grow, there's this change, this transformation that God is doing in us. What you and I cannot do, we cannot do in ourselves. And I would suggest to you the greatest thing about the story of the prodigal sons is that Jesus emphasizes that we have the opportunity to come home. And here's what coming home means. It means identity and purpose. The father at the end of the story says, son, all I have is yours that my primary identity, that your primary identity is to be the son or the daughter of God. That you don't have to perform a certain amount, you don't have to accomplish a certain amount, but your primary identity, the primary label that you wear is God's son or God's daughter more so than a label you put on your own heart, more so than a label that somebody else attaches to you, somebody else, no one else defines you, more so than you, your creator, than your father. No matter how good or how bad your earthly father, your earthly mother are, you're coming home to a perfect heavenly father who fiercely, who fiercely loves you. And your identity gives you purpose. That you follow the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's your purpose? To love your neighbor as yourself. And there you find the simplicity of the gospel 
reality for you. We make it so complex. We make it so hard, so difficult sometimes. We ask ourselves the questions at different seasons. Who am I really? You are the loved child. You are the loved son. You are the loved daughter. No matter how far away you've wandered, no matter how good you are, you cannot do anything to make God love you anymore. And you cannot do anything <laughs> to make God love you any less. So today, this is your opportunity to come home. I believe your heavenly father has made it clear, lost far away, lost near, all are lost. Today is your opportunity to come home. I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna give you the opportunity to pray with me today to begin a relationship, not based on your performance or your lack of performance, but based on the finished work of Christ on the cross in your place, dying to pay for your sins and my sins, resurrected on the third day to give us the promise of new life. If you wanna take that step and receive that today, just right now, you can bow your head and pray with me. Just pray something like this. Jesus, thank you for leaving heaven, coming to earth and dying for my sins. And Jesus, today I'm saying that I'm coming home. I turn away from my sin. I turn away from my, my self-righteousness. I turn away from my, my desire for pleasure. I'm saying that I'm not worthy of it. But today I'm believing your promise that I can be called your son or your daughter. Jesus, please forgive me of my sins and make my heart new. I'm saying I want you to be the leader, I'll be the follower. Thank you for this great salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.